Welcome to the Lord's Podcast with Will Rowe. Welcome along to this month's Lord's Podcast. Lots to discuss today and I'm very pleased to be joined by Middlesex Managing Director of Cricket, who is also one of the current England selectors and former fast bowler, Angus Fraser. Welcome along, Gus. Afternoon. And joining Gus is the Deputy Editor of The Observer magazine, and more importantly for the podcast today, the author of Following On, a memoir of teenage obsession and terrible cricket. It's Emma John. Welcome, Emma. Hi. Great to have you here. Now, coming up on this month's podcast, Muhammad Amir returns to Lords. England's selection issues as Anderson and Stokes missed the first test against Pakistan and we reminisce about England's trials and tribulations during the 1990s. As well as this, I put my guests to the test on the Lords podcast quiz and we have your questions from Twitter for Gus. But first, we're now a day or so away from the first test between England and Pakistan this summer and both sides are here training today at Lords. But naturally, much of the focus is on Mohamed Amir. He'll make his test comeback this week, having last played a test at this ground in 2010. It was during that test that he was involved in a spot-fixing incident which saw him banned from cricket and also serve a jail sentence. Now this week sees a chance for redemption. Um, first question, some of question whether he should be playing at all. Uh, where do he stand on his return? Uh, I have some sympathy for him and I'm glad to see him playing cricket again. Um, obviously, you can't condone what took place here those years ago, but I think there was a young man there, naively maybe, um, not looked after by senior figures in the side um, and, and ended up doing something that he obviously regrets deeply. So I have uh, some sympathy. I know there's been a lot of people saying uh, should be live bands and stuff like that. Uh, I don't agree with that. I think... Uh, Vincent see how he's welcomed over the next few days. Uh, but I, for one, I'm pleased that he's back playing cricket. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think with sport, ethical dilemmas are always difficult because the whole point of sport is it doesn't actually work if you don't play by the rules. Like, sport as a whole, it's, it's a total fabrication. Like, it doesn't stand up unless everybody abides by the rules, which is why I think a lot of people do believe in life bans, whether it's for um, doping or, or other cheating behaviour. You know, like in Bridge, don't they ban you from Bridge if you if you ever caught cheating at Bridge? I think I think that's the case. Anyway, life bans in Bridge. Yeah, I've never looked into that. But, <laughs> but I, you know, I sort of under, I can understand the ethical argument of that because actually, if you if you say I'm not going to abide by the rules of sport, there's there's actually kind of no point in you being there because you you've undermined the entire thing. However, I do think that um, you know. I just think we live in a, a realistic world where people make mistakes and people are, do need second chances. Everybody needs second chances. And also, I think at a really difficult, horrible, fractious time like this, not just in England, but in the whole world, we all need um, to really like show a bit of um, mercy and understanding and reconciliation with each other because otherwise, you know, we're all headed in a terrible place. So This I really... is the most political start to a Lord's <laughs> podcast I've ever had. It's interesting, again, I mean, you've got to take into consideration the circumstances to just say there's a blanket, one, one rule fits everybody. So say Middlesex are playing cricket. Uh, someone, a member, brings a cake into the dressing room for tea time and the players innocently have a bite out of that cake. The drug test, they don't know there's something in it. The drug test has come the next day and four or five of them fail a drugs test. I mean, where do you, are you saying you these are magic brownies? No, I'm, I'm just sort of saying. But, but if, you, if, you, if, you, if someone goes to the effort of that and you toss yeah. it away, then you're rude yeah. and you're, yeah. you're sort of you're not in touch with people and stuff like that. So that's so true. I think there's, there's got to be some 
awareness. It's got to be a case by case situation and realizing where an individual was at that that, that period in time or the position or exactly. what the circumstances and that surrounded. The authority have you know they they have made that decision, and I think that's where you've got that's where you've got to stop, isn't it? They they're the ones who've had all the evidence. They're the ones who've listened to everything. Not only <coughs> has he been um, sort of tried by. Um, you know, in an actual court of law, he's also yeah. been tried by 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 the cricket council, and, and they are the people who have taken all these things into account, and they've made their decision. And I think not only should we just abide by that and say, "Yep, that's that's fine." Okay, if that's that's what we that's what's been decided by the authorities, that's fine. I also really hope that he gets a good reception here, and I really hope that nobody boos because I think it's one thing to boo somebody like David Warner isn't that a terrible thing to say but I think it's one thing to boo when it's funny yeah. and when it's you know when it's like it's a kind of you know pantomime villain-esque thing and you know whether it's Stuart Broad or whoever that there's a little bit of humour there I think this is somebody who has actually been to prison for what he did and um, we need to have some kind of um, sympathy well, he, he may well be booed, and I'm sure in time we will find out. Bringing it forward, I'd like to bring the first question from Twitter under the hashtag AskUs. Um, thanks for Shaheb Ansari uh, tweeting this one in. He says, how can England handle Amir? Because at the moment, 2016, sitting here now, he looks to be bowling extremely well. Yeah, I mean, he's a fine bowler. Uh, and I think that's the thing that stood out when he was here <laughs> uh, all those years ago. It's sort of frightening, actually. I think it was six years ago, wasn't it? But... Uh, uh, he's a fine bowler. He's obviously looked pretty good when he was up at uh, Leicester. Was it during the week he played up there? Um, but I say he's he hasn't played a lot of cricket recently. English, right? Sort of can question sort of the form of the England batsmen, but England are in a good position to decide. They've just beaten Sri Lanka. Um, I think there's more pressure on him at this moment in time. And with Wahab Riaz as well, he's. Bowls over 90 miles an hour. Is there any concern maybe that the England batsmen will struggle against the pace of this Pakistan side? With all due respect to Sri Lanka, they weren't the quickest bowling attack. No, but as I say, they've got some good bowlers. I mean, that's why everybody looks forward to series against Pakistan. You're never quite sure what you're going to get. I'm sure there'll be some names that come out of this series that we've never heard of before and you think, blimey, yeah. uh, there's something a bit special out of them. So, as I say, if I could pick, if I forecast the future, I wouldn't be sat here now, would I? So... <laughs> Uh, but obviously you're backing those players to sort of to cope with what's put in front with them, front of them, and they've they've managed to do that so far. It's a different challenge. Yes, they are stronger, quicker, uh, but equally you've got to you've got to bowl well. Well, and isn't something some of it going to depend on the pitch as well? I mean, Stuart Broad this morning has been saying that he's worried about the pace of the pitch. What 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 do you reckon? I haven't seen the pitch. I've only got it this morning. Middlesex have been away, so I haven't looked at the pitch before. Now they haven't had a great deal of pace in them this year. Uh, but Stuart Ball's been saying quite a bit, hasn't he, by the sound of it? <laughs> yeah, he's pointed out. I think he's pointed out that nobody's taken twenty wickets on it yet. Not this season, no. No. Well, time will tell whether England or Pakistan will achieve that. Uh, moving forward onto the the England selection issues, James Anderson and Ben Stokes both unfit, so you've had to make a couple of changes in the bowling department and in the batting. You've also brought in Gary Balance, which uh, many pe- people thought was a bit of a shock. Could you explain sort of the decisions behind that? Uh, well, James finished the Sri Lanka series with a, a, a shoulder injury, um, diagnosed as a, a stress fracture. Uh, when we sat down last week, he hadn't bowled, or he'd had a couple of gentle sort of introductory bowls since. And we've, I mean, during the winters, we've sort of said that you don't want really, ideally, you don't want to be carrying unfit players. That becomes a centre of discussion. That becomes a total centre of the media leading up to the game. And it's a, it's a negative yeah. Is he going to be fit? Is he going to be fit? Actually, well, hang on. This 
10 other fit blokes there are looking forward to this but that dominates the news so uh, obviously Jimmy's a wonderful bowler and you, you try and give him as much time as you want but I think we want to see him bowl in match conditions ideally before he to prove this show is fit uh, before he gets back in the England side so it's a tough call because he was outstanding against uh, Sri Lanka uh, and everybody knows sort of how important person he is but so his absent creates an opportunity for someone else and uh, uh, hopefully they'll take it. Not necessarily as, as controversial though perhaps as Gary Balance. No, no. I mean, Gary, I was up at uh, Scarborough and Gary batted beautifully against Middlesex, got 130. Uh, played another innings before that. Uh, it's, there's going to be, a, well, it seems there's going to be a jig in the order. So that's one of the things. So Joe Root going up to three. So you're looking at a number four, five uh, situation. Uh, we believe in Gary Balance and we think he's in a, in a good position to do the job. But it does beg the question of how much does, you know, one innings... Um, influence you as a selector? Uh, I think, well, the, the fact is he was just after Nick Compton in our conversations earlier this year. Right. He was in South Africa. Yeah. So there's continuity there. Yeah. And there's a question from Twitter from Alex Dean. Why does Scott Borthwick not get a call up? And does Jake Ball come straight in for Anderson? So first question, uh, Gus, on, on Scott Borthwick. He's been in and around the team. He's made his debut in Australia. Is there an England future for Scott? Well, there's obviously a future there, yeah. I mean, no one's put a big black nine through his name, that's for sure. There are a number of players discussed. Ian Bell, Tom Wesley, uh, the sort of other, other players as well. Uh, but we've decided that we think Gary's the right person. He's got an outstanding test career. His average is near 50 with the bat. All right, he hasn't he had a lean period before. Yeah. Uh, but uh, our judgment that he's ready to come back and we think he'll do a good job. And he's batted well here, actually. Balanced two test centuries at Lords, so it's obviously a ground that he likes a lot. Um, quite interesting in the in the bowling department. There's going to be a test debut this week. Uh, Jake Ball or Toby Rowland-Jones, or even both, uh, we don't know. Yeah. Um, obviously, Toby Rowland-Jones is a bowler you know extremely well from Middlesex. Uh, what was the thinking behind his call-up? Except for, of course, the fact he's bowling extremely well at the moment. <laughs> I think that he's bowled pretty well for the last four or five years. So uh, his call-up's thoroughly deserved. I suppose you sit down and say, right, Jimmy Anderson is not fit enough to play or we don't, yeah. he's not in consideration for this game. Your continuity is that Jake Ball moves up. Well, who's the next, bowler in, next best bowler in county cricket at this moment in time? And Toby Rowland-Jones has been bowling well, for, as I said, for a number of years. Um, and his record... Suggest, well, his record suggests that uh, he is a fine which he is, and he, he he may get an opportunity. I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the final eleven is picked by the captain and uh, and the coach, so they'll monitor how they go in the nets over the next couple of days, and uh, they'll make a judgment on that. So it could be interesting to see where they go, whether they do go for Jake or or for Toby. Also interesting in that I discovered today that if um, if Tobias Skelton Roland Jones gets <laughs> picked for his Test debut, he'll be the uh, first. Double-barrelled surname since not in since Norman Mitchell Innes in 1935 for England. But that was something that we considered a lot with our selection. Yeah, I know. Double-barrelled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you were thinking about Absolutely. that. Absolutely, we thought we needed a double-barrelled. I can't believe that there haven't been more double-barrelled names since 1935. You just assumed there would have been. Especially with the amount of sort of public school cricketers that have come through yeah. to play for England. That's a good one. That's your wisdom knowledge coming through. Well, I which we'll put I... to the test later. <laughs> oh, no, please don't. <laughs> Uh, and, and as a cricket fan and working sort of at the Observer, this week when those names were announced, there must have been a bit more discussion than, than, than normally for a, for a test squad. I think, I think that's right. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? That, um, you know, I'm coming at it from the point of view of somebody who came to cricket in the 90s, that uh, we went through a decade where selection was uh, incredibly 
well, pick and mix, let's say. Yeah. And um, and then when England were doing really well, we got into a, a situation where you just the eleven just picked itself again and again. And um, I think actually Mike Atherton used to say this is all getting a bit boring. <laughs> well, <laughs> he used to complain about it in the press box that he was getting the same names on the tape, team sheet. But it was just a sign. Doesn't of, give anybody anything to write for. But that yeah, doesn't mean exactly. it's the wrong decision, but does no, it? We're not here to. It's a great thing. It's just an incredible thing to have stability. And um, and so yeah, so this so I uh, to be honest, it's not just this week, is it? The last year has been an interesting year, you know, with finding an opening partnership, with looking for the number three, um, and and it's the kind of thing that you know, cricket fans, cricket writers, we uh, love to talk about. But yeah. I don't think it should. Um, I think it's something that's easy, easy to it's easy to talk about because it's easy to compare. But oh my goodness, I would hate to have to be the person in the selection room. Uh, but the thing is, I mean, everybody looks, and you, you pick people, expect them to do well, and your selection gives them an opportunity, and that's what uh, young players want, don't they? They want opportunities. It's then down to them to take them, and hopefully, uh, they do take them. But if they don't, you give them a decent period of time so that you can hopefully make a decision with a certain degree of certainty. Yeah. I think in the past. You're dropping people after one or two test matches and then not knowing whether they're up to it or not and then picking them again sort of six months later type of thing. Uh, but at least now, hopefully, uh, we've got a pretty good idea of whether a player can manage and cope with, with what, 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 in, what, what it is to be a, an international cricket. And it's a, it's a lot more than just out there facing... Yeah. Bowlers, it's it's coping with being the centre of the country's photo, sort of sporting attention for so a week. I've got to ask this: you've you've been an, uh, a member of the England dressing room as a player, you've uh, been a member of the press box mm. as a writer, and now a member of the England selection committee. Who serves the best wine? <laughs> um, well, actually, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of difference there, isn't there? I mean, everybody sort of used to think that the journalists are sort of the, on the sort of toot from about midday onwards, but, but I've never seen any journalists really drinking at all uh, before before they've sent their copy in. Uh, and there's been no booze at any of our selection meetings. Oh. I think it. Uh, no, I just imagine you there no, with the port. They're normally in the morning. They're normally in the morning, so it's it's coffee and biscuits rather than uh, port and brandy. Yeah, <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> I think that's a good time to bring in my next question from Twitter. Um, why don't bowlers use the Yorker more often? It's a ball that often gets a wicket. Uh, this is from Lyndon Nathaniel. Um, and I sort of hark back to days of Darren Goff, you know, steaming in and bowling those Yorkers. Uh, well, it's a, it's a great ball when it's bowled well, but it's a difficult ball to bowl. Uh, and you get it slightly wrong and it's a full toss or a half volley, which gets hit for four. And as a bowler, you're trying to work the percentage in your favour. Uh, a lot of the time, frustrating batsmen, not giving them much to hit. Uh, expecting the odd ball to do something that sort of causes them uh, problems. Uh, yeah, when you can get it right, and obviously you saw Wakai Yunus and, and, and Wazi Makram in, in years gone by with the reverse swing, uh, bowling Yorkers in devastating style. But uh, it's I found it a difficult ball to bowl. Uh, it's not a ball you practice all the time. Um, you practice it sometimes. And again, I think you look at uh, white ball cricket, the jury's still out on many occasions as to whether Yorkers is always the best tactic, the slower balls, the short balls. And things like that, because you get the Yorkers slightly wrong, um, it, it, it's very hittable. Uh, so, yeah, if you can if you can bowl it on tap, but if you could bowl it on tap, then you could pitch any ball anywhere on tap. Yeah, uh, and you'd probably never go for a run, and you walk off with sort of seven for fifteen most weeks. Great. Well, now moving on, it's received fantastic reviews since it came out earlier this year. And we've got the author here with us today, um, and one of the starring cast from the book. I'm of course talking about following on a memoir of teenage obsession and terrible cricket. 
Uh, Emma, I think I'll bring you in here. Can you can you explain how the book came about? And for those that don't know anything about it, what it's about? Okay, so the the book came about um, partly because uh, I had. Well, okay, the re- real reason the book came about is because I just didn't think anybody had really written about 90s cricket, particularly. I mean, I apologise immediately to all the players who've written autobiographies because they clearly have. Um, but but there's it's like it's a, a slightly forgotten period of the game. Not forgotten. Everybody remembers it. They remember it sort of in that way that you wince when you remember a bruise or something. There's a, there, there are memories for it, but I didn't think that... Um, people remembered it as fondly as they should do, perhaps, um, uh, because it was a difficult time to be an England fan. However, it happened to be the time that I became an England fan. Mm. Uh, I was a teenager and I uh, completely fell in love with the game in 93 uh, and and as by extension with the England team and um, the cast of players. And I really, I wanted to write about it I I didn't want to I didn't want to write a history of it I didn't I didn't want to you know go and write something that was um, an exhaustive uh, discussion of what went wrong with nineties cricket or anything like that because I think there are plenty of better qualified people most of them in the actually Sky Sports commentary box to do that uh, but I do think it was a unique time to be a fan and so I wanted to write something personal about what it was like being a teenager. Um, and what, why, you know, why teenage, teenage girls, boys, whoever can do this, can become obsessed with a team, can can completely become smitten with a team, um, regardless of their results. Certainly in this case, so that that's that's what it really is. That's what the book is. And the book, I've read the book. It's fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here. Um, <laughs> you go through each chapter. You you go and, and meet one of the the players from that '90s side, and you sort of interview them, and you go off on a few tangents, and you come back, and then at the end there is the sort of the sit down. It's almost a kind of Wizard of Oz style sit down with Mike Atherton, others, who um, is quite normal, and it's not it's not anticlimactic the ending, but it's it's an interesting ending. Well, yeah, so meeting your heroes, it's obviously something I'd already had to do a little bit by, you know, my first job in journalism was as a cricket writer with um, the Wisdom Cricket Monthly, as it was then for four years. Uh, And um, I have met, interviewed and even, you know, sat alongside writing in the press box, uh, many of the people who were my 90s heroes, including Gus, uh, who I can't quite look in the face right now while I'm talking (laughs) about it. And... um, uh, so, in that sense, you know, having been a cricket journalist for a while, meeting meeting sports sportsmen and interviewing them, on one level, it's quite normal, it's quite easy. However, when you are at the same time purposefully thinking back to when you were a teenager and all the, um, you know, the the amount that you invested the amount of emotional energy the amount of your time i mean let's face it cricket you know for a player it takes up plenty of time but for a fan you're not only spending all those days watching you're spending all those hours reading about it and talking about it and you know whining at your mum about it in my case and um and so therefore like meeting the players i thought would be interesting i thought would be particularly interesting in terms of I know that a player's experience is obviously incredibly dif- 
different, almost entirely divorced from a fan's experience. And so it's particularly interesting in a period when um, you've got a team that aren't, aren't especially successful but do have these great highs when they do win, um, what it is like to be... Uh, how how bad it feels, how, what the comparison is in emotion between the player and the fan. Because for a fan, it I think it can potentially be more painful. You can't. There's nothing you can do to affect what's happening on the field. Obviously, you know I can't. Quite being a director of cricket then. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I just think that it was interesting talking to Graham Thorpe, for example. You know, he was somebody who said. You know, he wouldn't have changed it for the world. And also, a lot of the time when England were doing badly, it didn't it didn't hurt so much for him because he was doing his best and he was often doing quite well and he enjoyed the adversity. You've got the challenge yeah. of that adversity. You know, you're actually actively involved and you're doing what you love and you're getting paid for it. And, you know, sure, it's depressing um, to uh, to keep coming up against, you know, some world-class teams who are, who are going to beat you eight times out of ten say but there is there's kind of personal redemption for you in it um i think for a fan uh and um especially let's say a teenage fan who is going through all sorts of weird hormonal stuff and very <laughs> up and down it's actually there's 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 a massive lack of control anyway so sorry that is a long way of saying meeting the players i thought was important however yes sitting down and having lunch with Mike Afton, possibly one of the most terrifying experiences of my life, despite the fact that I had you know, met him several times before and um, you know, got on well with him. But still, when, when you're talking about something that's been that personal to you, I think my biggest fear in all of this, and it's really nice to have the opportunity to say this, my biggest fear in writing a book like this, when you're being quite open and honest and vulnerable, is um, of totally being judged by the people you've written about. I mean, that's the, that's the scariest thing. Is thinking, I you know, I hope that everybody who who uh, was a involved in it by by chatting to me, but also other players from the era who who then go on and read it will see that it's coming from a place of great affection and respect, which it is. There, there is a certain amount of nostalgia about 90s cricket at the moment with Mark Butcher's documentary on Sky. Obviously, Gus, you were there. Um, can you see where the nostalgia comes from and also what was it like to be a part of that England setup? Well, I, I mean, I, I agree. I'm happy I played when I played. Um, uh, I think the 90s was... Uh, I mean, in the 80s, it was definitely you're a county cricketer that's released to play for your country. And obviously, central can, contracts came in in, two, well, in the 2000 onwards. And I think the 90s, there was a real jostle for space, respect, control between the players and the board. Uh, and uh, the fact that sort of the, the profile, the importance of international cricket was, was getting more, was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, so therefore, the, the necessity of the England side to be getting better and better or putting in better performances increased. And uh, the sort of, uh, I mean, I suppose the... the the contract dispute that we had, uh, the World Cup before the '99 World Cup, sort of sort of brought things to a head in that respect. I, as I said, I I, I didn't look back. I watched the the Sky thing. I won't watch it again. Um, I haven't read the book. Um, not not because I haven't, but I mean it's my decade. And if it's terrible cricket, then do I run a sort of people laughing at your expense? And uh, you actually work damn hard. Yeah, got a record you're proud of. Uh, in the Sky documentary, you. Taken what, 13, 14, 5 for 2 8 for 
got a test bowling average that hasn't been better by any current England bowler and the only clip of you is dropping a catch at third man to make you look stupid so and you've got Piers Morgan slagging you off so yeah it's great isn't it I, I actually I mean and I hope the book, the book shows this one of the things that I thought was um, most interesting about writing it is that there again there has never been a kind of revisionist history of the 90s and an appreciation of how actually good the team was that how a how how extraordinary um that decade of world the team underachieved was. considerably i mean that, yeah. that, i think that's one of the frustrations you look at yeah. the quality of cricketers that we had in that era and we should have done a lot better than we should have what well, we should have we should have done far better than we did and that is down to us as players we take responsibility of that but there was also the way that the players were managed and looked after and and maybe treated and as you as you were saying, about, I mean, the fact that you're playing against the, the early '90s was a great West Indian side, uh, and then all of a sudden that got overtaken by probably the best ever Australian side. And uh, the fact that you're getting beaten up by the likes of Shane Warne and Alan Border and uh, sort of the War Brothers and Ambrose and Walsh and Lara and Haynes and Greenwich and Richards and people like that. Uh, all right, you you weren't as good as them, uh, but these were except two exceptional sides, uh, and we we lost. Um, but again, we didn't get. There weren't any blackwashes like there were in the eighties. There weren't any five nil thrashings by Australia as there have been recently. So um, it didn't. I, I sort of. I haven't. I say. I, it didn't feel uh, like it was reported to me. I, th- I think that's right, and I think also it just we had to take that decade out of the. the uh, we had to take it out of the the natural thing, which has been. You, you're right to sort of make it almost like comic people people liked to make it very one-dimensional and think that you know Phil Tufnell dropping catches say mm. you know it was mm. that that's funny but but that it, it absolutely undermines all the incredible work that happened and also it completely forgets that we you know when when England did win both tests or you know indeed you know a, a series um that that was a that was a massive deal and and this is sport. This is this is what sport's about. You you might not you know it's like Nick Hornby uh, when he started supporting Arsenal was not was not supporting them in a great era. That didn't that didn't mean that he didn't appreciate their efforts any less or he didn't identify with them any less. And it, and it actually you know it can mean that you actually identify um, with people more because it's not like um, you know having a yeah. I say you look at the era and and I. Say well, why do you enjoy it? I mean, obviously, players are far better looked after now. They get mm. uh, financial security. If you've played ten-year career, you're going to be in a good position now. Yeah. But the pressure they're under, the sort of spotlight, the social media, the comment, the outrage, the sort of lack of tolerance, great expectations. We could be silly so and sos in the '90s and, and get away with it. it. I mean, we worked hard, we were fit, uh, we we gave it our best shot, and but there was space for you to go out there and have some fun, and enjoy the experience of playing for England and touring these countries. Uh, nowadays, you sort of wonder whether they'll, the current team, yes, they'll they'll have won a lot of games, a lot more games, and, and had sort of sort of certainly better bank accounts. But will they look back on it in the same fondness? Because I think we all do. I mean, even I mean, in, in Nasser saying, I mean, he sort of said he wouldn't change it for the world. The fact that you're playing against the names of the cricketers that I played against: Warren, McGrath, Ambrose, Walsh, Lara, Haynes, Greenwich, Richards, uh, Martin Crow. I mean, Akram. I mean, you were playing against some great cricketers. So the fact that you've actually stood there on a field and, and tried to take them on is, is something you look back on with fondness. You didn't write a book yourself? No, I haven't. Did you what, what, Did you ever think about it? Uh, I did a tour diary book which when I was playing and it was ghost written 
yeah. and then obviously I became a journalist yeah. so I'd have to write it myself and I'd yeah. sort of not had sort of six months or three months or whatever it, I mean obviously they're, they're quite big investments aren't they yeah. to sit down and write a book and you also I mean a lot of people because the cash is quite good isn't it but you sort of think well actually when you do something it will be about your whole experience in cricket rather than just sort of something to uh, to cash in at this moment in time because someone's come up to you with a three book deal or whatever yeah not that they have. <laughs> <laughs> and there's still many chapters to come. Great. Well, we're going to finish with the Lord's Podcast Quiz, which is where I give you to a date. And all you have to do is tell me what happened on that date. I'll give you three options. Um, and so I'll put this out here now. Uh, for the listeners, you won't be able to see that, obviously. But uh, Emma, you can go first. And it's all about this great ground and cricket. So, in 1991, what happened? Was it A, the opening of the Compton and Edridge stands at the nursery end of the ground? Was it B, David Gower gets his name on the Lord's Honours Board for the second time in his career? Or was it C, Yorkshire's Richard Blakey makes his ODI debut at Lord's? What happened in 1991? Oh, that, is, that is really tough. I am going to go... I'm going to go for Blakey because Blakey feels like a... a a 1991 name for some reason in my head that 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 seems to fit I'm going to go for A because I played in a test match here in 1990 against India when this end was demolished because uh, who was it hit three couple of three sixes into this stand to avoid the follow on didn't he in that yeah. well that was a brilliant test match actually uh, Gooch 3-3-3 three, three, three. so I'm going to go for A Gus, you are correct. In 1991, well, like the opening of the Continent Edridge stands. Well, I did have an advice. Yeah, that's there, fair yeah. <laughs> right, our next question. I accept that. So Gus takes a 1-0 lead. Okay, I don't know if you'll have special knowledge here. In 1822, what happened? Was it A, did Thomas Lord die at the age of 76 in Westmere, Hampshire? Was it B, the first Oxford v Cambridge match was played at Lord's? Or was it C, Harrow were bowled out for 99 in their first innings at Lord's against Eton in the annual schoolboy fixture? Uh, Gus, you can go first with that one. I have not got a clue. What happened in 1822? Thomas Lord dies, first Oxford v Cambridge match played at Lord's, or Harrow skittled for 99 in their first innings against Eton? I'll go for Oxford Cambridge. I feel like it's going to be all three. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> no, they no, all no. sound like stuff that happened in 1822. So if Lord died at 76, that would have meant he was born in, what, 48? Oh, no, my, my maths is terrible. Don't That's overthink it, right. Emma. Don't Four overthink six. it. Um, uh, this is 200 years old. I feel old, like... Okay, I'm going to go... Um, I'm, I'm going to actually expose my complete ignorance because having been at Cambridge, if I go for Oxford first Oxford v Cambridge match and say it's that, then it's gonna, it, that's going to be the thing that's going to most expose that I don't really know anything. So I'm going to go for that. So you're going for B? Yeah. So you've both gone for B. Um, the score stays at 1-0. <laughs> it, it was Harrow were bowled out for 99 in their first innings at Lords. Um, I just realised this is why I never win anything. My strategy was terrible. I should have gone for a different, <laughs> different answer to that. You should have really. Yeah, if you knew, if we both knew they were right, you wouldn't be going for <laughs> That match was, in fact, a two-day match, and Harrow, despite being bowled out for 99, went on to win by 87 runs. So there you go, low scoring. Um, finally, so Gus is 1-0 up, all to play for. In 2012, Emma, what happened? Did A, Michael Atherton ring the five-minute bell at Lords? B, Joe, Rook, Joe Root sorry, took three catches in an innings during a Lords test? 
Or was it Johnny Bairstow making his test debut at Lords? Oh, what gosh, happened this is in two thousand and twelve? So embarrassing, because I really should know when Johnny Bairstow made his test match debut. <laughs> um, I, I can't believe that they've ever let Mike Atherton ring the five minute bell at Lords. Surely they haven't let him do that yet. <laughs> I can I can reveal that all three things have happened. Oh, okay. Um, I okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go for I'm gonna go for B. I'm gonna stick with B. I'm gonna go that Joe Root took three catches. Fantastic. And Gus? As a selector, I should probably know when Johnny Burster made his test debut <laughs> too, but before my time. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I'll go for Everton. Aye. So you've gone for Root taking yeah. three catches in innings, and you've gone for others ringing the five minute bell. You're both incorrect. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so Gus holds on for a 1 0 victory. <laughs> It was indeed Johnny Bairstow making his Test match oh, debut gosh. against the West well, that's Indies. Embarrassing for both right. of us, really. And Joe Ro- Joe Root, I can't say his name anymore. Joe Root took three catches this year against Sri Lanka in the first innings. Wow, three that's three catches as an outfielder. It's the most he's ever taken at Lords. Everton rang the bell in two thousand and eleven, the year before. Right. So there you go. Right, great stuff. One 0 win there for you, Gus. Um, just to finish off the podcast, what have you got coming up over the next few weeks? Busy man, I. Yeah, well, obviously, the test series starts against Pakistan, although as we're looking out the window here, it's <laughs> raining, of course, so, uh, which has been a pretty common theme this summer. Uh, so that's there. Uh, then, I suppose in county cricket, uh, Middlesex, we're obviously vying for the championship and uh, playing some good cricket at the moment, but we've got a two or three week period of white ball cricket uh, with 2020 and, and 50 over returning. So, the real challenge for us is to get through to knockout stage if we've not done as well as we want in that form of the game, in those forms of the game in recent years. So, that's a real challenge for us as a club over the coming weeks to get through to the quarterfinals of both the Royal London and the NatWest Blast. Well, best of luck for that. And thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. And Emma, yourself? What's that? What, what have you, what what have have you got, got coming up, up over uh, the next... Well, to to be finish honest, off the podcast, what are you I, doing? I'll tell you what I've got coming up. I'm doing a lot of research, but I'm going out to cover the Olympics. Um, oh, amazing. For the Guardian, so... I will mostly be covering gymnastics as I did at 2012 and so there will be a lot of, it's almost like doing A-level revision again, there'll be a lot of head down in books, um, researching what's happened in gymnastics over the last four years and being ready to talk about it. Well enjoy that, that sounds fantastic. Thanks. Great stuff. Well many thanks for those of you that have tuned in. We'll be back next month with more cricketing stories from Lords. so remember to follow us on Twitter, our handles at Homer Cricket. Be our friend on Facebook, and for all the latest news from Lords, just go to lords.org. See you soon.